and welcome to the F1 Strategy Report for V8 Race Manager, the new game available on iOS and Android. On this week's edition, the Japanese Grand Prix, Nico Rosberg puts one hand on the championship, and I consider a new podcast in which I touch asphalt with my hands. That's all to come in this edition of the Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato, and joining me is friend of the program now. You get that title once you've been on twice. He's been on, this is his second time. His name's Abhishek Takle, he's a freelance motorsport writer. How are you? I'm good, Michael. Thank you for having me on the show again. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's always a pleasure to be on the show, (laughs) even though it's only my second time. Absolutely. And this is the end of the Japanese Grand Prix weekend, and a big race. A big race not only for some of the more ridiculous events that happened off track, not necessarily the purview of this program, but nonetheless, but a big race. And let's start with this, first of all, for Nico Rosberg, who now has one hand on the championship purely by virtue of the points margin he has now. Absolutely. I mean, Rosberg has never been closer to the title. Mm. Um, it's remarkable given, you know, by the time of the summer break and even the Belgian Grand Prix after the summer break, we just thought he'd sort of lost the plot <laughs> and he's never going to come back. But yes, it's been quite the turnaround, helped, of course, by misfortune striking Hamilton. Mm-hmm. But one senses that Rosberg's also gained a psychological edge on his rival this weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, heading into this weekend, actually. So, yes... Uh, I see, I mean, I don't want to jinx it, but um, I think Rosberg's looking very, very strong for the title. Mm, that's as far as you're willing to go, as that's anyone, as any journalist willing to go, yeah. Well, I, I'll say Rosberg is definitely in contention yeah. for the title. <laughs> he could win if he scores more points than Lewis by the end of the season. That's yes. generally how it works, I think. Uh, I'll, we'll touch briefly on, because we will mention the psychological aspects of this race and, and the effects they have. So we'll only touch briefly on the fact that Hamilton's had a pretty weird weekend. He's been in a bit of a mood since that engine fire put him out of the race in Malaysia. And you probably can't blame him, considering he did lose all 25 points of a race he probably should have won last week. But walked out of a, didn't walk out of the Thursday press conference, but didn't really give anyone any answers. Was playing on Snapchat, then said, look at my Instagram page. Did walk out of his post-qualifying press conference after being out-qualified by Rosberg. Is this just sort of weird unit Hamilton behavior that we sort of have been used to over the couple of years, or is this some pressure showing in this championship fight now? Do you think? I think uh, I think the engine fire in Malaysia that put him out of the race really, really took a toll on him because um, he had uh, you know he'd gone into Malaysia uh, after being you know dominated by Rosberg all weekend in Singapore, mm-hmm. uh, but he'd bounced back. You know he'd basically taken quite a dominant pole. And uh, he was set for a very comfortable win, especially after Rosberg had been spun around at the start by Vettel. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so he would have actually gone into, had he won and Rosberg was on course to finish fourth, remember, he would have have led the championship. Mm -hmm. But instead, he came away with a 23-point deficit after Malaysia. So Mm -hmm. that, yeah, let's not also forget that this is not the first engine-related trouble he's had this year. Mm -hmm. So that definitely probably took a bit of a toll on him. Yeah, and so we're seeing this now playing to the championship fight. The fire was important in its own right, though, not just because it's tipped uh, Lewis Hamilton off balance, but because the result has been after an investigation of all of four days by Mercedes. That's how efficient these teams are. They've decided something called the big end in the engine had a failure. Anyway, that resulted in the fire. But as a result of that, the engines have had to be tuned down slightly. And we didn't see, and we're talking about qualifying now, 
such a big advantage Mercedes had, especially in Q3 when normally they can turn up their engines and then just beat everybody. I'm going to have to correct you there slightly. Uh, I, I claim no mm. technological expertise okay. of Formula One engines, but <laughs> it was the big end bearing that fail. Uh, it just sounds Whatever better when yeah. it just <laughs> sounds better when you get to say, well his big end failed, didn't it? Well <laughs> Well yes, his ass was on fire. <laughs> but, <laughs> but but yeah, um they haven't exactly pinpointed what caused the failure. They know what failed, but they mm. don't know why it failed. Mm. And they've um coming into the weekend they said that they've adopted a more conservative oil. Mm-hmm. Good. <laughs> Um, so yeah, but uh, Toto Wolf did say that the engine is not as they weren't running the engine as spicy <laughs> as it could be run. Uh, so yeah, it's definitely taken the edge off mm. them in qualifying a little bit, and less so in the race, but certainly mm. in qualifying. So yeah, that's true. Yeah, and so there was a bit more optimism in in the ranks of challengers in uh, Japan, certainly considering in Malaysia everyone seemed quite close anyway. Mm. Just because Malaysia sometimes a bit of a weird circuit given the heat and, and the track was resurfaced. Might have been and so the negative on. camber. Could have been the negative camber at the last turn. So this gave everyone a little bit of optimism. I guess a curveball over Mercedes again was that we did have the same tyres, but given the uh, very different conditions compared to Japan and Malaysia. I think, what was it, 60-something degrees in Malaysia was the track temperature. Here it, was it was touching. It was, I think, yeah. being 60-something. You, you heard it was in the low to mid-20s. Exactly. Really, yeah. So dramatically different. And so we found the tyres actually, particularly the soft, wasn't lasting as long. There's so much effort that goes into tyres these days. There's a whole background argument about tyre testing at the moment. But for your opinion, we've asked a couple of people this on the program, do you think tyres are playing too much a role, especially when you consider we've had two race weekends in a row with the same type of tyres and yet the team still can't get to grips with them, if you pardon the pun, one weekend from the next because they keep seem to change? Yes, I do think they're playing um, a very big role in, in determining the outcome of races, but that's been the case ever since Pirelli, uh, ever since Pirelli uh, uh, came into the sport in 2011. Um, and to be honest, I don't see that as uh, being a completely bad thing because uh, I think in the current scenario with Mercedes dominating, a bit mm. of variability <laughs> is good. And, and as far as a casual fan is concerned, all he's going to care about is uh, one week somebody seems to be out front, the other week somebody else seems to have an advantage. So from a from a casual fan point of view, you know, it's fine. Because mm-hmm. there's that variability. It's when, you know, the, the more serious fans try to sort of delve into why it is and it all seems to be sort of this black art of mm-hmm. how the tyres are performing. So, yeah, it does complicate things a bit. But I think I think that variability is good. Mm, I don't think anyone would disagree with that. We had a great win last week, which wasn't from a Mercedes car. Mm. Couldn't say the same this week, but nonetheless, the race was very interesting. Yeah. The win, of course, was set up by qualifying. Nico Rosberg qualified on pole, and uh, I mean, he didn't lead every lap because there were pit stops, but he pretty much led every lap. That's sort of the way it works with pit stop these days. Uh, That is important around Suzuka. In fact, I don't think anyone's ever not won from the front row, I think I'm right in saying. So that really set up his weekend. But what I thought was interesting is that we talk a lot about this being a driver's track. Everyone loves to say it's a driver's track. And yet in qualifying, we saw almost every team lined up row by row. Do you think it's fair to say it's a driver's track or is it a car track? Well, I think it is fair to say it's a driver's track because while it was a bit of a noir's arc in qualifying, Mm -hmm. uh, they're all very good drivers that lined up in those spots yeah. so um, yeah but I just think that the differences between the cars are mm-hmm. uh, you know I would say wide enough where each driver mm-hmm. is basically competing against his own teammate um, 
Though what I did find surprising was that the Red Bull drivers and Ferrari drivers lined up uh, mm-hmm. on the same row because those two teams were actually quite close close to each other this weekend. Mm-hmm. It was a matter of a hundredth of a second yeah. here or there. And yeah, so that was surprising. I think a lot of people were surprised actually to see Ferrari ahead of Red Bull Racing because it's been the accepted wisdom since pretty much the mid-season, maybe even earlier in the mid-season, that Red Bull's ahead of Ferrari at this point. A little bit more power sensitive this track than Malaysia, but nonetheless, should we read anything into this little, this one race Ferrari resurgence, do you think? No, I don't think so. I think it may... <laughs> <laughs> Ferrari have to earn their place in Formula One. <laughs> <laughs> I hope Sebastian Vettel's listening to that. Well, I hope not. <laughs> but anyway, no. So, um, yeah, I think it was just a one race thing. I mean, of course, you never know. But I, I think it was a one race thing because even Raikkonen and Vettel were surprised at how good they actually <laughs> were. So, like, what? They were so good that they both had to take penalties <laughs> to neuter their positions a little bit. Vettel, of course, from Malaysia. And yeah. Raikkonen just because he wanted yeah. a new gear. I think they didn't, they didn't feel quite at home. Yeah, uh, so close you know, to the front. Yeah, so close to the front. And so they probably thought, mm, mm. let's take a few penalties. I think but so. I think it was a one, one, one-off thing. And I think it, it was down to the temperature because Red Bull seemed to um, I wouldn't I wouldn't exactly say struggle but it mm-hmm. didn't seem quite on top of it in the cooler temperatures as they did last weekend in mm-hmm. Malaysia so it may have just been a temperature related anomaly Absolutely. And one of the other most important parts of qualifying, Williams didn't make the top 10, but Haas did. In fact, both Haas cars made the first time uh, in Haas's history that both cars have made the top 10. This will play a part in the race, but uh, they didn't score any points. Let's just jump to that point, first of all. But I guess it's a good sign for Haas, nonetheless, that they are now capable after, let's say, three quarters of the year, because ultimately this year has been about learning to function as a team. Getting two cars into the top 10 is a pretty good sign of that. It is, and uh, it's encouraging after the sort of the dip they've had and all mm-hmm. the problems they've had, and you know the moaning they've had from Grosjean on the team. <laughs> it was a good thing for them to qualify in the top ten, and, and it's not like the car has lacked pace or something mm-hmm. because remember they did start the season off, uh, you know, very strongly with two point scoring finishes. Yes, helped by some retirements, mm-hmm. but but nevertheless Absolutely. a strong way to start the season and. Um, since then, I think what's got them out is their lack of experience, really, more than anything. Yeah. Um, and not just strategically, but also when it comes to setting up the car, when it comes mm. to perhaps even, despite all of their Ferrari support, also putting it together. Because, mm. you know, they've had they've had things with front wings falling yeah. off. and Brake failures all the time, yeah. it seems. Exactly, just yeah. Perpetual I mean, brake <laughs> failures. <laughs> so... Um, well, you know, it's good without brakes, they go faster. Well, so. that's true. Yeah. Why remove the part you save weight and you don't slow down? It yeah, seems like exactly. the perfect strategy, really. Yeah. And part of it, though, in all seriousness, is getting the laps right. We've seen multiple teams, in fact, not just Haas, at, at different occasions will mistime a lap on qualifying and miss the checkered flag and miss their lap. So getting two cars into the top 10 is an achievement. It is important to note. So well done, Haas. Too bad you couldn't score any points. Uh, the strategy, though, for this race, and this might surprise a few people as well, given, again, the conditions compared to Malaysia, despite the same tyres, a one-stop was generally out of the question here. It wasn't completely for Williams, because they did one stop, but for whatever reason, it was more likely in Malaysia, where it was hotter, where you'd think the tyres would last less long. We'll talk about Williams in a moment, though, because the majority of cars opted for the same. In fact, pretty much the entire grid chose the same strategy, starting on the softs, especially if you're in the top 10, you qualified on the soft, and and then went for two stints on the hard. The hard tyres actually this year becoming quite a good race tyre, which is a little bit unusual. I know, very strange. But but I think, I think see, the difference between here and Malaysia is simply uh, the resurfaced track. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, the, 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 
tarmac, the asphalt in Malaysia, some people compare it to, to being almost Sochi-like. Yeah. And do you remember? Uh, do you remember 2014 Rosberg? Well, he pitted on the first lap after mm-hmm. he flat spotted his tyre, so he pretty much did the whole race on just yeah. one set of tyres. So I think it was down to the asphalt uh, being smoother, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was just. It was, whereas here you've got sort of, yeah, you and and you do put a lot of. Them, they may there may not be a lot of temperature in the track, but you do put a lot of energy into the tire mm-hmm. out here. So at Suzuka, with all of the high speed uh, sweeps and all of mm-hmm. that, so uh, so not 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 surprising uh, really. But yeah, yeah, the hard is really proving itself mm-hmm. to be a very capable race tire indeed. Yes, mm. a more abrasive asphalt as well. Since yeah. last week, we were talking so much about asphalt, we may as well update yeah. people on what the asphalt is like. One day we'll have to have like a a sound grab where I, it's just me sort of touching the asphalt and you can judge by the sound of my hand how it feels. Uh, I don't know if it would be any difference, but we could try it one day. Uh, Rosberg led easily away from the line, largely because, and this really set up the only strategic variation, if you like, in the top 10, other than the Williams cars. Uh, Helmsley dropped to 8th. He had a terrible start. In fact, a little bit part of this, there's a speculation, a rumour, uh, a grassy knoll type rumour, if you will, because Hamilton's side of the grid was a little bit wet. Mm. And uh, some people suspect that's why he got a bad start. He said it wasn't. Uh, it, I guess it, can, it could have affected him. Let's give maybe him the benefit of the doubt, even though no one else had a, as bad a start as him, that maybe the wet affected him. And But I guess the rest we have to say is that he's just not been very good at starts this year. No, he hasn't. He's had... Uh I mean, both Mercedes have had bad starts uh, mm-hmm. this year. Uh, remember Rosberg being beaten off the line in Germany by Hamilton. Yeah. Yeah. But Hamilton's had uh, worse the worst starts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, he's had bad starts on more occasions than Rosberg, mm. let's say. Uh, but yes, I'm I'm sure the tarmac would have probably sort of the damp mm-hmm. uh, track on his side of the grid would have probably played some part in it because. Even Ricardo had okay. Hamilton had a worse start than Ricardo, but mm-hmm. even Ricardo struggled to get away. Yeah, and he was sort of lined up right behind Hamilton. So uh, I'm sure that played a played mm-hmm. a part because the other side of the track was basically dry. Yeah, um, yeah. So it comes down to sort of these minor things, and the minor minor mm. differences uh, end up making a huge uh, difference. We heard Toto Wolff after the race talk about this because, of course, everyone wants to know why Hamilton got a bad start. And he was describing that at least his opinion compared to other teams is that they have a very complicated clutch at Mercedes. Uh, it's very difficult, very tricky. And he was, I think some people were implying he was trying to say there was a technical problem with Hamilton's, but it seemed to me the summary was mm, the clutch is just hard. Maybe he should just be better at it. Uh, it's very tricky nonetheless. Do you feel like, and I talk specifically about last year, I think I'm right in saying, or maybe even this year, where Mercedes was making clutch modifications and there were in-season testing dates that Hamilton neglected to turn up to. Rosberg went did his practice, Hamilton didn't. I, I'm loath to be the guy who says Hamilton's lifestyle is affecting his performance because I think by and large he's proved that it doesn't but do you feel like that these little one percenters are now starting to add up in Rosberg's favour it's taken him three years but they're now starting to, to, to work for him well uh, I don't know because yes that may have made a difference initially mm-hmm. but Hamilton's had now several starts with this new clutch system so I mean mm-hmm. you'd think uh, any disadvantage he may have had through a lack of experience he would have made up for it mm. You know, that's well, that's well, the way I mean. Yeah. He's a world champion, so <laughs> um, for how much yeah. longer? And to be honest, I, I I don't buy. Well, at some point, obviously, there is a tipping point that's reached mm-hmm. where the lifestyle does affect the driving. I don't know if he's at that tipping point. Only he knows what the tipping point is. But to be mm-hmm. honest, uh, the fact that Mercedes have given him the freedom to 
live the lifestyle he mm. wants to probably allows him to perform Absolutely. the way he does i mean yeah. that's maybe what makes him tick maybe he draws mm. energy from all of those uh, all of his off off track activities and he mm. basically comes to the track in a better frame of mind that mm. allows him to deliver um yeah so i think the lifestyle thing again it's only hamilton who knows what the tipping point is mm-hmm. but yeah no i'm inclined to agree i think the lifestyle thing is not so much the the issue uh, this week it's sort of just been more his choice of of time in the paddock uh and it's uh, his priority i suppose but as you say it's it's really up to him as long as he performs and he has been performing up to this point won many races this year as well so we can't really criticize there were two key moments in hamilton's battle really he had a pretty average first stint on the soft tire in fact a lot of people had a pretty average first stint on the soft tire due to temperatures and the fact that the soft tire didn't last that long about 10 laps for most people uh, at this track but the key to jumping a bunch of cars at the start was actually the fact that other people had bad strategies Kimi Räikkönen and Sergio Perez in particular were cars that were ahead of him at the first stops but they stopped early and got stuck behind uh, old mate Jolio <laughs> uh, and allowed Hamilton when his stop uh, came yeah, about to I just mean, jump them just, I, I don't know why or oh, maybe they, maybe the degradation was just so much more worse because mm-hmm. remember now all of those cars behind uh, well behind Rosberg and Verstappen effectively mm-hmm. All of them were basically fighting for position yeah. uh, in the early stages and sort of following each other around in the in the early stages. Now, if you if you notice Hamilton, he sort of and and people expressed surprised at the fact surprised at the fact that he wasn't moving up uh, through the field quicker mm-hmm. than he did. Yeah. But I think uh, Hamilton sort of was very prudent and he kept a watching brief. I remember mm-hmm. him chasing Raikkonen uh, during that opening stint. And he dropped to, I think, 1.22 seconds behind Raikkonen and he held station. And I think that maybe allowed him to run longer, whereas Mm -hmm. the likes of Raikkonen uh, had to pit. Mm -hmm. And because they just couldn't extend that tire life beyond that point. And and that dropped them into traffic, whereas Hamilton was Mm -hmm. able to pull out those few laps longer and stay out those few laps longer, which Mm -hmm. allowed him to um, avoid old mate Julian. (laughs) 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 <laughs> and basically delayed the likes of Raikkonen enough mm. to gain uh, track position on them. Yeah, and I think what's interesting, you touched on it there, and this is something certainly Daniel Ricciardo pointed out, and this might be the only mention Daniel Ricciardo gets this week after winning last week because he finished just sort of sixth and a bit nothing. But this circuit is it's narrow, first of all. I think originally designed as a motorcycle circuit for one. Aerodynamic dependent in most parts of the track by the two short-ish straights. Uh, following cars as you said there was a lot competing in the top 10 all at close quarters really affected a lot of people and ultimately spread them out over quite a large distance um, reduced the first stint in fact we saw Kimi Raikkonen because of that uh, early encounter with old mate uh, had a had a short middle stint on, on his hard tyres because you can't make the tyres last these days if you're following cars very closely it's something we're going to possibly be talking a lot more about next season when the aerodynamic rules change but at a track like this where aero is important, you, you sort of don't get that good racing, do you? Um, you don't, but and it's interesting you mentioned Raikkonen because on a set of new hards in the mm. middle stint, he only did two laps more than he did on a set of yeah. used softs that the set he started on. Mm-hmm. He did 12 laps and he did 14 on the set of new hards. So, yeah, interesting. Or maybe, maybe they just decided to pit him early to try and undercut. Something Ferrari would try. Just pit him early. Yeah. Give it a go. <laughs> yeah. 
at least they're giving it a go but anyway so uh, may have just been the undercut but yeah you're right I mean with these uh, aero tracks it does become uh, difficult to follow another car mm-hmm. around because it's not just the aero makes it difficult to follow a car around but the amount of time you spend stuck behind another car yeah. increases your tyre wear and we know these tyres are extremely sensitive so mm-hmm. Yeah, so it doesn't help for sure. Yeah, and that also ties back into uh, again. We'll we'll say it for a third time, old mate Jolien. <laughs> uh, this wasn't the the case at that early point in the race where everyone was still obviously on the lead lap, but blue flags became an enormous issue at the Japanese Grand Prix. Not necessarily more than they were at other Grand Prix, but just everybody seemed to be complaining about them because aside from those uh, short straights at this circuit, there isn't very much opportunity for a back marker to just pull aside and let a front runner through. So all of that contributed to sort of having to manage tire wear as you go because if you're unlucky enough to get caught behind back markers, it's not really that much different to, to chasing another car and being in the dirty air of a car you actually want to pass for position. Uh, and that all played a part in the strategy. But we get now to the crucial part that Hamilton... Uh, uh, that allowed Hamilton to get back onto the podium. This was the battle with Sebastian Vettel, who held third for much of the race up until the final stops, which were on 33 and 34 for Hamilton and Vettel, respectively. Uh, And we actually saw uh, a change for a top 10 or a top 6 runner in that Vettel opted for the soft tyre. But this happened after Hamilton stopped. Hamilton stopped on lap 33 for Newhards, Vettel on lap 34 for soft tyres. Used hards, I think. Vettel for new softs. This was the only real difference in the top of the race. Didn't work for, for Vettel at all, though. But I know your take on this was it was not really glowing of Ferrari's strategy, was it? No, it wasn't. Because uh, I felt, I mean, you could see uh, Hamilton was closing the gap on Vettel before their mm-hmm. second stops. You could see the gap coming down. I think it was, came down from, uh, after the first stops, it was somewhere around 12 seconds or something. I may be yeah. wrong, but off the top of my head, it was around 12 mm-hmm. seconds. And you'd close that to about four seconds when uh, when he came into the when Hamilton pitted. Mm-hmm. So when you could see that gap coming down, I thought Ferrari, in the interest of maintaining track position, should mm-hmm. have just brought Vettel in earlier than they did, rather than reacting to Hamilton. Mm-hmm. They should have sort of rolled the dice first, brought him in, put on a set of hards. I mean, I know he probably didn't have any fresh hards yet because Ferrari mm-hmm. came in with this whole yeah. <laughs> load of soft tires, but. Uh, put on a set of used hards. If mm. well, maybe he they, should yeah. have had a set of hu- of used hards. He should I have, think yeah. I'm right in saying, yeah. And uh, and, and should have just sort of that would have helped him keep track position after the pit stops mm-hmm. uh, ahead of Hamilton is what I imagine. Now whether uh, the pace difference between the uh, Mercedes and Ferrari would have meant that Hamilton would still have passed him mm-hmm. on track, we don't know. But track position is king, mm-hmm. as we keep saying. <laughs> Yeah, and here's the beautiful twist, though, because looking at the times, uh, first of all, the soft tyre was the wrong decision. Hmm. This is the thing. The soft tyre was the wrong decision, not because of when he pitted or anything, but because after well, one or two laps, I think it was, where there was some really close fighting, yeah. Vettel had a go, and you know, then he was distant, then he got close again, then he was distant, and for the rest of the race, he ended up all of 14 seconds behind Lewis Hamilton after, mm. what was that? He stopped on lap 34, it was 53, so 20 laps. So he lost what was it, three quarters of a second a lap yeah. to Lewis Hamilton eventually. But critically, he should have had track position regardless. This was the problem. Hamilton had a great outlap, so that contributed partly to the time cut, as you said. But Vettel encountered some classic blue flag scenarios. We know he was one of the biggest complainers on there. So Ferrari, when Vettel came in on his inlap, actually thought regardless of the tyre they were going to choose, he would still end up in front. 
But the traffic on the inlap sealed his fate, and regardless of what tie he was going to choose, uh, he would have ended up behind. It's just incredible to think that he might have ended up in front. Might have both of us might have been happy, mm. but he would have inevitably lost his position to Hamilton anyway. Yeah, I think so. I mean, look when he when he put on the soft tires and he came out of the pits just behind Hamilton. Initially, it seemed like a like mm-hmm. the gamble was going to pay off because yeah. you could see how much more quicker he was on the softs, but. The tires lost their edge after like a lap or two, and yeah. then you know even before they sort of properly ran into traffic, he was already falling back, and um, he couldn't he couldn't keep up with Hamilton down the straights. That was a problem. So mm-hmm. basically, he just uh, yeah he had that one lap to try and get past. Yeah, um, and it didn't happen. And then after that, he just kept dropping back and dropping back and dropping back. It's strange how it always seems to be the Ferraris that run into traffic <laughs> most of the time. You know, I mean. All weekend they've been well, not just this weekend. Yeah, Kimi yeah. moans or anyway. Yeah, yeah. But if, if if the blue flag is shown, he moans because he thinks it's shown for him. But <laughs> um, so yeah, you can never you can mm. Kim, you can never make Kimi happy. But then yeah, Sebastian's also moaned a lot about blue flags. I don't mm. know how it's always the Ferraris that seem to get caught up with this. But, yeah, I think so. But yeah, it did. Uh, that was what that was what defined the race after that basically the, the radio traffic between drivers and, and team and it was up to then Hamilton to try and close down second place which was held by Max Verstappen he did cut that advantage quite quickly because his tyres were newer even though they were used tyres he stopped much later than Max Verstappen uh, he closed the gap we'll only talk briefly about this because it doesn't qualify strategy but we'll talk about it anyway uh, Verstappen did a let's say a move just in the braking zone which we've seen him do a couple of times now in Belgium and, and Hungary in particular uh, Hamilton was forced around the outside, went wide, and to quote Jean-Marie Ballest, did not respect the distance of the race. That was irrelevant, though. He joined the track, couldn't pass Verstappen. What was your take on that move? Is this just classic, good old-fashioned Verstappen, or is this something that should be looked more closely at? But to be honest, I love that move. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know which camp you fall into then. Yeah. No, because look, uh, I know. I think what he did in Belgium uh, mm. was far more on the edge. Mm. Uh, the closing speeds were drastically different. Yes. Uh, especially with Raikkonen down the Camel Strait. Uh, here it was fine. Yes, he moved under braking and apparently... Uh, the, okay, the letter of the rule says that mm. you can move and then move back a second yeah. time as long as you leave uh, cars a car's width, width of space. Mm. Uh, technically, he is even in Belgium, he's stuck to the letter of the rules. Mm. But the unwritten uh, sort of letter of the law says mm. uh, that you can't move around in a braking zone. So even if you leave... Uh, a car's width or, yeah. or whatever you can't move mm-hmm. you can make only the one move in the braking zone yeah um, so he technically if you think about it that unwritten rule he broke mm-hmm. but the closing speeds are not that much more different mm-hmm. and he did leave a car's width mm-hmm. and we saw a similar move from Verstappen in Canada on when, when he was defending yes. from Rosberg yeah and see Verstappen has this knack of placing the car perfectly mm-hmm. in all of his maneuvers you see he always leaves that one car's width and just mm-hmm. that one car's width yeah but 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 he's yeah i mean i, I thought the move was 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 less uh on the on the borderline as compared to belgium so i think mm-hmm. it was fair i think i mean and, and it's it's good hard racing that's what you want to see we've got to talk about force india and williams because this is a battle that's going to define the midfield for the rest of the season they had contrasting strategies force india starting in the top 10 had to start in the soft then they switched to the hard and they switched to the medium just to change things up this was precisely because bob fernley says they were just covering every possibility with williams williams started on the mediums just outside the top 10 11th and 12th they were then switched at about half to 
distance, 20 laps 24 and 26, uh, to the hard. Now, everyone thought they were being ridiculous when they started the race because they were so slow mm. on the medium tyre. On the hard tyre, they were much better. The hard tyre, again, being the race tyre of choice. And they managed to scrape their way into the top 10 at the expense of Haas, both of which cars did not finish in the top 10. But crucially, if we're talking about this midfield battle, finished nowhere near Force India. They finished nearly 60 seconds down the road on Force India. Was this enough for Williams? I guess they took a risk. Yes, they were a bit aggressive with their strategy. Yes, they scored points, but just not enough points. Well, look, they they took a risk with Bottas in Malaysia and it paid off. Mm-hmm. They took a risk today, it didn't pay off. It do- doesn't always go your way. But, I mean, it's interesting to, it's interesting to see that Force India are properly now ahead of Williams mm. because um, they were the ones... Uh, in control of that battle, I mean, they they were covering everything Williams did, so, but but they were in a position to be able to go this way or that, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. Uh, so yeah, I think I think it was clear today. Uh, Force India, they won. <laughs> Absolutely, they won. It was the only strategy variation in terms of stops. Really, uh, was the Williams team, and they started on the medium as well. One of only a couple of cars to give that a go. Mark Ericsson also one stop. So did Kevin Magnussen uh, and old mate Jolyon Palmer, all to varying effects. Uh, also, Felipe Nasser gets an honourable mention there as well. And just a quick note on Haas, who scored no points despite starting in the top ten. Uh, Romain Grosjean very upset to finish only eleventh because he felt the car was really good. But what he felt they got wrong was that second stop. And again, I guess this comes down to the team gelling properly because they couldn't really judge the tyre life. And Gutierrez, no points down in 20th, which is just sort of what Gutierrez does. And he damaged his car in a bit of a spin. Yeah, that, that spin was all down to him, even though he complained on the mm-hmm. radio. But I don't think he—I don't think Sainz did anything wrong there. It was an interesting race. It was a big race. It was a big race for Nico Rosberg. It was almost felt like race. a title decider, didn't it? It did. Didn't I mean, it? in terms well, of intensity, yeah. As we said, one hand on the championship now, and that's going to make every race that much more critical for Lewis Hamilton, for Nico Rosberg, and with only four races to go, anyone who wants to change position in either championship, every race is going to count. Abhishek Takler, it's been a pleasure to share this critical race with you. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. And we're out of time for this edition of The Strategy Report. If you want to read more about the strategy of the Japanese Grand Prix, you can go to f1strategyreport.com for Jack Leslie's write-up of all the action from Suzuka. Or search for F1 Strategy Report on Facebook and Twitter. Can you give places back better than Jamie Wincup? If you think you can, V8 Race Manager is the new strategy game from Mogul, now available on iOS and Android devices. My name's Michael Laminato, you can find me at Michael Laminato on Twitter, and join me in two weeks' time when we look back on the United States Grand Prix.